Hi, and welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Eva Ivashuk, and I am joining you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. On this podcast, we explore the ins and outs of the European Green Deal, the EU's flagship environmental initiative. We are recording this episode on a hot summer day. My co-host Aaron is on a well-deserved holiday. And what I would like to talk about today are indeed those hot summer days. When I started preparing this recording in August 2022, there has been a forest fire raging within the city limits of Berlin, and the temperature hit 38 degrees. This still sounds moderate compared to 47 degrees recorded in the town of Pinhao in Portugal in July. A runway at a London airport melted in the heat, and the grass in parks from Paris to Warsaw turned dry and yellow. The Rhine, the river flowing through Rotterdam, Köln and Strasbourg, is running dry. It is the same river that catastrophically flooded a year ago, destroying towns in Germany and Belgium. In this summer special episode, we'll talk about the impact that climate change is already having on the urban areas across Europe. What I want us to learn today is what plans are made as part of the European Green Deal to help us better cope with those impacts. We'll also discuss my favorite topic, which is how we can use nature to help us cope with challenges such as heat and flooding. To discuss those topics, I am joined today by three experts, my two colleagues from Ecologic Institute, Jenny Trulsch, a senior fellow and an expert in climate adaptation, and McKenna Davis, a senior fellow and an expert on biodiversity and nature-based solutions, as well as Tomasz Berger, a professor at AGH University of Science and Technology in Kraków, and a vice president of the Sędzimir Foundation, an NGO promoting sustainable urban development in Polish cities. Jenny, McKenna, Tomasz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, thank you, Eva, for the invitation. Jenny, I have a first question for you. We heard some anecdotal evidence about how disaster-prone and hot this summer has been. Has this been actually the hottest summer on record? And do we have data that could tell us how the future is likely to look like? What we can say about this summer of 2022, I think, is that a number of new heat records are actually reached and large parts of Europe experienced heat waves in several months, starting in May, uh, June, July, and also in August. We have seen that in Spain, we had really an exceptional warm spring, more than 15 degrees above average temperature for this uh, time of the year, and also with a new temperature record uh, during May. What we can see from the data is also that in France, for example, that uh, 27 of the 150 weather stations, they have recorded new maximum values during this year. And I think what is also really remarkable is that the first time ever, 40 degrees are reached during a heat wave end of July in the UK. I think what we can say about the future projections and yeah, what's expected for the next years and longer period is that heat extremes will continue to become more frequent across continental Europe in the future. We can see an example for the south of Germany, where we are expecting instead of five heat dates, which we have today, uh, and heat dates are described with a temperature above 30 degrees. We will see 40 heat days at the end of this century and also the region could experience a climate which we have at the moment in the Tuscany region in Italy. Furthermore, in the middle of the century, an 
average summer would probably look like the summer which we had in the years 2003 or 2018, which had in the south of Germany about uh, 20 heat dates. Just to give another example, for the year 2050, we are expecting that Vienna, for example, could experience the summer temperature of Skopje and Prague could have temperatures of Tbilisi. Well, that sounds like quite severe changes that we are going to expect in the future. And Tomasz, you work with many local governments across Poland, and I wanted to ask you, what are the key impacts of climate change that we're already experiencing in urban areas? You know, there are two trends, I would say, that are easy to observe. A few years ago, the main problem, the main impact was connected with water, with water excess, actually. So all kinds of flooding, overflowing of infrastructure, drainage, etc., water on the parking lots and the streets, there were main problems that actually 99% of the city's interests were connected with, you know, too much water. And in recently, the problems, I would say, extend in the sense that there are other impacts which are equally important or even more important, especially the lack of water, the shortage of water, all kinds of droughts we can probably discuss later. And in um, a few recent years, maybe the biggest problem in the big cities, it's what you discuss already, it's heat waves, generally heat island, especially in the big cities like Krakow, Warsaw, what we discuss is this tropical night problem. So we've got several nights with a temperature of 25 or 20 degrees. And what we can observe, there are people who are going to hospital. There's like a mortal risk. So it's a pretty huge problem, especially that in Poland, we don't have this kind of culture of dealing with with high temperature. So in our culture, it was never the problem. Heating in the winter, there was a problem now. Probably the biggest problem in the big cities is the heat, waste, high temperatures. Jenny, as part of the European Green Deal, the European Commission adopted an EU strategy on adaptation to climate change. What are some of the key goals of this strategy? The EU adaptation strategy has four main objectives. Uh, it's to make adaptation smarter, faster, more systemic, and to step up international action on adaptation to climate change. It actually means that knowledge on adaptation will be improved and more and better data will be available to all from families building homes, businesses in coastal regions, and also farmers planting their crops. As effects of climate change are already being felt, we must also adapt more quickly. And therefore, the strategy focuses on developing and rolling out adaptation solutions. And the strategy will support the testing of solutions on the ground. And it will also support the investment in climate-proof infrastructure with a very long lifetime. Another focus is on supporting activities to reach smart and sustainable water use, which I think is very fundamental for climate resilience. And it includes also the challenge of sharing water resources, which becomes uh, more and more uh, relevant in different parts of Europe. And as climate change will have impacts on all levels of society and across all economic sectors, we need systemic solutions and integrate adaptation actions in the priorities of different policy fields, different economic sectors, including public and private uh, sectors. And topics which are especially highlighted uh, in the strategy are, for example, nature-based solutions, but also macrofiscal policy and also local adaptation measures. Okay, so a lot of what you mentioned, it sounds like it does cover some of the topic that Tomasz has mentioned as the key impact. And thinking about the weather extremes that we're experiencing right now, do you think that the strategy is fit for purpose? And also, in your assessment, does it contain any elements that are particularly innovative or anything that you were particularly 
excited about when it came out in 2021? Yeah, I think the, the strategy highlights and supports important aspects which are necessary for adaptation. I think at first it's really rolling out implementation activities on the regional and the local level and also supporting prioritization and selection of adaptation actions across different economical sectors, for example. I think sometimes it's a bit unclear how these objectives can be reached. And I think another critical issue is also, which is discussed quite a lot, is that binding and measurable targets are missing on the one hand side on the EU level, but also the member states are actually not asked to set some kind of binding targets within their adaptation strategies or adaptation plans. Targets are, are needed really to accelerate adaptation efforts very quickly. I think an innovative approach taken by the Commission is the establishing of the mission on adaptation. It's a new way to develop and test really concrete solutions and to have an effect on the ground. The main goal of this mission of adaptation is to support at least 150 European regions and communities towards climate resilience. They should be reached by 2030. It's focusing on fostering the development of innovative solutions in very close cooperation with regions and focuses a lot on the local needs and the involvement of a wide range of stakeholders within developing this kind of solutions. And we can see so far that more than 100, exactly 118 EU regions and local authorities from 18 member states have signed the mission charter and show with this that they are really supporting the objectives of the mission and the adaptation strategy. Tomas, as we can hear, the EU adaptation strategy puts a lot of emphasis on local action. In 2018, 44 Polish cities actually prepared their local adaptation strategies as part of a program that was coordinated by the Ministry of Environment. And I wanted to ask you what has been the result of this exercise a few years down the line. That's an interesting program because when it was started four years ago, there was a lot of controversies and I think that wasn't very well perceived because it was centralized. There was one thing and another, but budget was quite low and the level of consultancies and general discussion of this program was very low. So four years ago, there were more criticized than uh, appreciation. And after these four years, I think that it should be um, evaluated positively because uh, it has brought the subjects on the table. All of these programs, which were developed for 44 cities, bigger than 100,000 people, they developed the local city adaptation plans. So you could see what are the main problems which we discussed. So it put some structure, so to speak, and even the kind of ranking was the most important, less important. So it was very good. And besides that, these plans also showed what we should do. And now, after these four years, the problem of climate change impacts, climate change influence is much higher in much, uh, I mean, all people see, all citizens see the problem. So plans are there. What's lacking a little bit, and I'm happy that so many things happening on the European level, that these plans are not supported by any comprehensive financing programs or know-how, how to do it. So we know what are the problems, we know what we should do, but sometimes there's lack of funds, so the cities are left on themselves. Of course, they are doing something, but I think that with the good national or European budgeting financing system, we could achieve much more. McKenna, one of the key priorities of the EU adaptation strategy that Jenny mentioned is promoting nature-based solutions for climate adaptation. Could you use a few examples to help us understand what are those nature-based solutions? 
Yeah, sure. So nature-based solutions, or I'll call it NBS for short, they involve working with nature to address different societal challenges. And adaptation is one of those, trying to help to urban citizens adapt to climate change. And the idea is that you can protect, restore, or sustainably manage these natural ecosystems. And by doing so, you can really use nature to help build resilience to climate risks and reduce negative impacts for people, but also for ecosystems. But what are they actually concretely? I guess that's the more interesting part. So, for example, with precipitation, there's things like uh, managing and restoring watersheds, urban watercourses, so rewilding rivers, we call it, um, wetlands or urban green spaces, all of these kind of measures to work with nature to try to help improve the infiltration of water, reduce runoff um, and erosion and help store flood water um, as a way to protect the citizens, avoid damages caused by urban floods. But also things for drought, for example, like establishing green belts, trying to increase the water availability, provide shade, or for things like rising temperature to increase tree canopies in parks that we all came to know and love, I think, during Corona, especially when we're searching those outdoor spaces for things like shade and cooling, but also as a, a way to maintain contact with our neighbors during these extreme temperatures. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that these nature-based solutions, they really depend upon biodiversity in order to help us humans adapt to a changing climate, but also that we need to think because we're so dependent on nature to provide these solutions, then we really need to make sure that the species that we choose and the composition of plants that we select for these nature-based solutions are also themselves robust enough to adapt to a changing climate so that they can withstand different temperatures and water availability, for example. That is super interesting. And I think that it's not always obvious for us to think about urban areas and cities as, you know, being ecosystems or having ecosystems in them and how those ecosystems are actually helping us to improve the well-being and livability in those urban areas. I would be curious to know why do you think nature-based solutions are generally considered an attractive adaptation option? Well, not only did they look beautiful, much more beautiful than gray buildings and concrete, I think we can all agree on that. Um, but actually, if we think about the kind of range of benefits that they provide, what we refer to as co-benefits, so not just the adaptation benefits that we're looking for, but also I'll present in a moment a range of additional benefits. If you take all of these into account, then they're really more sustainable and more cost-effective in the long term than these traditional gray engineered approaches. So one thing I should say is that there's nature-based solutions that refer entirely to the use of nature, what I was discussing a moment ago. There's also what we call hybrid solutions, which are a nice combination of components. So you can have a mix of traditional engineered approaches with the gray solution. So this is relevant, for example, for sustainable urban drainage systems, for water management in that context. But the point is, I think that nature-based solutions really offer an opportunity to collaboratively design think about and implement this use of natural ecosystems in a way to deliver benefits for society and the environment, like maintaining um, urban green spaces. If you do this for rainwater infiltration, like I talked about a moment ago, you can really reduce the runoff, um, but you can also contribute to biodiversity conservation by creating new habitats. You can help to sequester and store carbon. You can improve water quality, but also for society, of course, improve mental and physical health by using this area for recreational purposes um, or as a meeting place. So working also on things like social cohesion and building this sense of community as well. So I think like if you really take into account these multiple benefits, then nature-based solutions for adaptation can really help cities to meet not only their adaptation goals, but also a lot of other local objectives um, under the umbrella of sustainable urban development, 
but also within the context of global commitments um, on biodiversity, climate, disaster risk reduction, human health um, and well-being and things like this. So I think that's the main advantages, but also, as I said before, really making decisions in a more collaborative way, sharing power, getting the involvement of marginalized communities or maybe unrepresented voices within decision-making. Nature-based solutions really offer so many possibilities and opportunities to involve citizens for the health, their own health, but also the health of the environment. Yeah, I really like what Makana said. And uh, as an engineer, as a designer, I would add also that the beauty among all of, all of these co-benefits, which are crucial and very important and very attractive. But from the technical point of view, sometimes it's the best or only solution, even when compared to the gray infrastructure, because very often there is a kind of, maybe not the fight, but the choice between. Sometimes you have no choice, because when you deal with the stormwater, the gray infrastructure is not very well, because it's so dynamic situation. So all of this climate change, you know, we cannot predict anything. The green solutions, they are dynamic, they are adaptive in the sense that they can you know, adapt to the situation. They can even adapt the whole microcosmos. They can adapt to the new pollutants. So, of course, it's very difficult to design because all of these changes are quite difficult to describe and to predict. On the other hand, they are very beneficial when you deal with such a changing media like stormwater and changing situation like the weather. So we have no choice, I believe, that only NBS... Not only, but MBS combined with the in the smart system with the gray infrastructure, there's only solution, I believe. Yes, I think that is very interesting because I think nature-based solutions used to be called the kind of no regret or win-win-win solutions, but maybe indeed we should start calling them we don't have a better alternative. And if that's the case, that's a good alternative because as we can see, they really provide a lot of benefits at very few disadvantages. And I think what McKenna also mentioned is super interesting and uh, relevant that they need to indeed be designed very well. Like, for instance, when we're choosing species, we need to find species that are adapted to climate today and in the future. And I think that's definitely a big challenge that we have in this respect. Tomasz, this approach of nature-based solutions or green and blue infrastructure, it is already known in Poland and the Polish cities are introducing those solutions. Could you maybe tell us about some interesting and inspiring examples of nature-based solutions being implemented in Poland specifically to adapt to climate change? Uh, they are blooming in Poland recently, so I think there's a really good trend. And there are better and better known in Poland, so there are plenty of good examples. I would start from Krakow, because I think Krakow is very progressive and maybe is a leader in Poland in this extent that we've got a very, very modern, a very dynamic municipal unit, uh, the Green Areas Management Authority, and they are doing quite different scale intervention in Krakow. So starting from the urban forest, big parks, and they are changing, transforming these big nature-based solutions kind of into more biodiverse, more um, multifunctional areas. And especially they are trying to adapt this area to climate change, but also to transform them into more uh, actively used areas for climate change adaptation mitigation. So this is very important. But they are also doing a kind of medium-scale intervention like UNERVs or pocket parks. There are plenty, more than tens of uh, pocket parks created in Krakow, especially to fight the results of heat waves, to cool the area. So they are trying to bring 
greenery, nature-based solution close to the inhabitants. So not only create the big parks, which are very important for us, but also to create a small island of greenery in the city and also the micro scale. So all kinds of rain gardens, all kinds of swales, all of these things are created. So I think the Krakow is a very good uh, examples, but also the small cities, towns even, some of them are quite active. So, and they're trying to turn into kind of green or garden uh, towns. For example, now uh, the Sanjin Foundation with the municipality of Leszna, we are transforming the whole valley of the local stream, Brusznik, to be more meandering, more green, and be able also to retain more water, stormwater. So the small towns which are investing in nature-based solution, they are perceived in Poland as a more dynamic, modern, so to speak. So uh, a few years ago, the modern city was one which was building parking lots and the great infrastructure. Now, I think that the people are expecting a completely different approach. So that's a lot of good examples. And of course, there are wonderful examples on the world. And as we publish together with you as a ecological institute in our NBS guidelines, there are a lot of good inspiration examples in Berlin. So Polish cities are also inspired by this example. So I think that we are on the good way. Tomasz mentioned an NBS guidance. We'll link to it in the show notes of this episode. He also mentioned a few examples of nature-based solutions, such as woonerfs or pocket parks or rain gardens. We'll get back to that because we'll give information where our listeners can find a bit more information. Tomasz, despite all of that, you're saying that on one hand, those solutions seems to be very beneficial and that there are cities that are already leading the way. We still sometimes you know, hear news from Poland about an entire city square being concreted over and all trees are gone. What would you say are key barriers when it comes to bringing more nature into urban areas in Poland? No, that's very complex subjects. There are several reasons. And the most important and trivial, on the other hand, is the inertia. So it's quite difficult to change the municipal uh, way how the municipalities deal with investment, with tenders, etc. So even though there is a high level of understanding, still some investments are kind of you know old style, but it's going to change. But the other barriers or problems are much more complex or difficult. And one is the kind of silo city. If you have the blue-green infrastructure, you need to have a lot of sectors, a lot of departments working together. And what's the good examples of Krakow is that we've got a very strong green areas management. On the other hand, they're quite good in the green areas, but they cannot intervene in the city because there is a you know roads uh, department, uh, water bodies, Polish waters who are uh, responsible for the water. So the communication between these players in the local level, but also between levels with the national agencies are very difficult. And it's very difficult to find, you know, the common way to find a common strategy. So there's a huge work to be done. And it's quite difficult to discuss these things, to find, you know, everybody's playing in different directions, so to speak. And there is also the kind of politician conflicts even. So um, here I see the big barrier. And another barrier which is even more difficult, is that as we understand nature-based solution as the important mean to adapt to climate change, not so much about mitigation. And I think that's something which we need to do our work to show that the green areas, they are not only beautiful 
And they are not only to cool the city or keep the water, but they are also helping to minimize the energy consumption. You don't need to cool your, your house. You don't need to heat your house if you isolated it very well with the canopy in any form. So I think that here is the huge work which should be done also on the European, but also on a national level. We are using coal still to heat our houses. It's, you know, 90th century solution. And now we can use nature-based solution, you know, alternative sources of energy. And we should combine all of them into the very small system to minimize the coal consumption, energy consumption. So here is huge work to be done. Thank you. I think that it quite important to think about it today while we're melting in the heat that ahead of us in especially North European countries is a very tough winter. We'll have probably an energy supply crisis that we'll experience in a few months. So it's interesting to know that those solutions are relevant, not just for adaptation, but also for mitigation, not just for cooling, but potentially also for thermal isolation. McKenna, the EU adaptation strategy is not the only European Green Deal policy that promotes the concept of nature-based solutions. What are some other ways in which the European Green Deal wants to promote bringing more nature into urban areas? Yeah, so indeed, there's really a strong focus. We see it through the Green Deal of building this strong response to climate change while also protecting Europe's biodiversity and global biodiversity. And really at the middle of this is this discussion of nature-based solutions. So the Green Deal is talking a lot about the value of ecosystems and their ability to provide essential services we've been talking about today, um, things like mitigating natural disasters and regulating the climate. And really at the center of this, there's kind of three core components. So one is the EU biodiversity strategy for 2030, then the farm to fork strategy, which is aiming for a fair, healthy and environmentally friendly food system. And then, of course, the adaptation strategy that we've been discussing so far. Um, so just to focus on the EU biodiversity strategy a little bit, um, they're trying right now to call upon cities with over 20,000 inhabitants to develop what they call urban greening plans. And the idea is to systematically integrate urban green infrastructure into urban planning across Europe. So really encompassing these yeah, medium to large size cities. And then there's also the potential within that, of course, to link these urban greening plans to other ongoing processes within the city. So really connecting and getting out of this kind of siloed approach that Thomas was also talking about. So bringing together different sectors, different actors, different institutions and within the departments as well, joining these together in this joint approach for managing urban green spaces for more sustainable urban development. Then there's also within the biodiversity strategy linked with this is this proposal that was just passed for a binding EU restoration law, which is really aiming to have ambitious goals to support member states in restoring their ecosystem health as a contribution to biodiversity conservation, of course, but also to all of these other co-benefits that we've been discussing today. So I think those are the main points right there where I see large potential. Um, but of course, nature-based solutions on a larger European scale are also being discussed and promoted within the areas of agriculture, climate mitigation, forestry, flooding, water management, and many more areas as well. So lots of potential there. Indeed. And we discussed the farm to fork strategy in the previous episode of the podcast. So if you want to learn more, we have episode four on farm to fork. Tomasz, you work in several EU-funded research projects where you accompany Polish cities that are interested in addressing different local challenges with the help of nature. From your observations, how important has EU funding and EU research cooperation been when it comes to promoting the concept of nature-based solutions at the local level? It's crucial. The big hope for the Polish cities who are trying to do something, which who are 
have to do something is to have the European support. Of course, funds are kind of trivial and obvious, but we discussed it before. But I would say that even more important is to show the model solutions and especially this kind of you know comprehensive strategically combined solution. So you know there's a great chance to show a completely new approach or new methods to manage your city. So I think it's very important to bring the, the very good examples. And of course, usually in this project we are sharing the, the best practice, the good examples. What is a bit lacking in my opinion is to sharing also with bad examples. Because you are learning from mistakes and nobody is trying to show your mistakes. And what's also the barrier, which I didn't mention, but the, the big barrier in Poland is that cities are quite scared to make mistakes. There's a huge pressure from the citizens, from the top level, from the national government on the cities. They are avoiding to make mistakes, which means they are not willing to do new things. And this inertia is partially you know, caused by this. So I think that this is very important to have this kind of international cooperation, especially European level. They are crucial for, for the cities. And what's also very important, they feel, A, they are not alone, and B, they are feeling to be a part of the bigger entity, the bigger network. And so they can identify the partners. That's very, very important. And not only for the big cities, especially for the small towns, they don't have access to this kind of know-how budgets. So for them, it's really like, uh, you know, changing the views, the way how they deal with the city management, especially with nature-based solution and, and blue-green infrastructure in the municipal management. McKenna, I'm sure that after today's discussion, many of our listeners would like to learn and explore a bit more about nature-based solutions and some of the good examples that we already know. Could you tell us more about Urban Nature Atlas and Urban Governance Atlas? Um, yeah, no, in two EU-funded research projects called Naturevation, uh, which has concluded, and Interlace, which is ongoing right now, uh, coordinated by Asset Ecologic Institute, we had the pleasure of developing what we call the Urban Nature Atlas. So the Urban Nature Atlas is a repository or a database of over 1,000 examples of nature-based solutions which have been applied across Europe. Now it's actually being expanded, which is really exciting, and we're still taking additional contributions. So please look that up if you have good examples from your city or that you know of that you want to have featured there. And it's really an easy-to-use database that you can search by societal challenge, for example, that's addressed by the cost that the uh, nature-based solution required in order to implement the different governance structures that are associated if it contributes to any certain policy objectives. Um, and as a complement to that within the Interlace project, we're now developing the Urban Governance Atlas, and we wanted to really focus here on policy instruments which support nature-based solutions and their implementation. So we're focusing now specifically on European examples and examples from Caribbean and Latin American context. The database will be available in Spanish and English and hopefully additional languages as well to allow a little bit more accessibility for those using it across the world. And the idea here is that we really want to support cities, but also those interested in research or other aspects of understanding what is the policy framework or what are the conditions of designing nature-based solutions to be effective 
what kind of financing mechanisms are there? What kind of awareness raising instruments are there? What kind of binding or voluntary regulation strategies and policies are there? These kinds of aspects. So that's being finalized now and should be released um, latest in the spring next year. And we invite all of you to have a look. We'll put the link as well to the upcoming website there um, for you to come back to. Yes, indeed. So we'll put the links to both the Urban Nature Atlas and the Urban Governance Atlas in the show notes. So if you would like to learn more about what are the rain gardens or the woonerfs or the bioswales that Tomasz mentioned before, you will be able to explore more urban nature-based solutions in the Urban Nature Atlas. Jenny, while this summer we are affected by heat waves and extreme weather in Europe, people in other areas of the world are likely to be even more strongly affected and more vulnerable to climate change impacts. With the EU adaptation strategy, is the European Union, in your opinion, doing a good job in supporting international action on climate adaptation? Yeah, I think that's a very, very important topic as we can see that, um, I mean, Europe will be impacted by climate change, but other world regions are actually impacted a lot stronger than what we expect for Europe. At first, it's important to mention that the EU adaptation strategy, which was published last year, includes the topic of international action on climate adaptation. That was not the case for the previous version. So it's uh, now, let's say, prioritized by the EU Commission also within the EU adaptation strategy to support international action on climate adaptation. Of course, there were already some kind of activities ongoing, but I think it's good to see that this is also a, a topic which is uh, really highlighted as one of the four main objectives within the strategy. The planned activities, for example, will support the development of national adaptation plans in EU partner countries. And these uh, national adaptation plans, for example, including concrete measures for the different countries. Furthermore, the support to local authorities in these partner countries will be uh, strengthened so that they are able to develop regional adaptation plans and also some kind of activities on the ground. I think another very important aspect is also the identification of new and innovative resources for adaptation and resilience, especially for the least developed countries. What we see at the moment is that globally, 93% of public and private climate funding flows into climate mitigation. And here the EU will provide funding and support partner countries. Besides providing own funding, it's also one objective to unlock existing funding, such as the Green Climate Fund, for example. And furthermore, the EU is also focusing on supporting exchanges on adaptation, for example, structured dialogues to share solutions or to discuss experiences with different tools, for example, risk assessments or vulnerability assessment tools. I think in general, the strategy covers a wide range of activities on international cooperation. And the topic is mentioned yeah, quite, quite heavily now. But uh, maybe one point which could have emphasized or a, bit, a little bit stronger is the interlinkages between different international actions. Maybe as one example, interlinkages between climate adaptation and disaster risk management. There are different international policy frameworks in place which have overlapping objectives and, and also the selected and emphasized actions are actually overlapping. And from my point of view, it would be very good to link like activities on establishing multi-hazard early warning systems for disasters or also to make the health system climate resilient, which are objectives which are mentioned in a number of different frameworks. A lot of activities are planned and it would be great to harmonize different international cooperation frameworks and activities a little bit more. I think it's very interesting what uh, you say, first of all, that there's an overlap between 
the priorities of certain agendas, such as, for instance, disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation. And I think we could here link a little bit to the nature-based solutions that we discussed, because that's also something that is quite multifunctional and could address multiple agendas. But I think it's also extremely important what you're saying is that a lot of international attention, international cooperation is focused on climate mitigation. That is extremely important indeed, because we need to reduce the emissions and slow down the climate change. But indeed, the impacts are already here. For us in Europe, they are severe, but elsewhere, there can be much worse. And to a large extent, Europe is responsible for the climate change that we see today around us. So I think that is extremely important that we see action outside of Europe. And I do hope we'll see more and more ambitious action and that voices from civil society and researchers, like the points that you have mentioned, will increasingly be heard in the EU institutions so that we can take up more action. To finish off the interview today, I wanted to ask each of you if you have any personal tips on adapting to the hot weather in the city. So on a very hot day, what do you do to escape the heat? Yeah, I would say find your friendliest neighbor tree. <laughs> so for me, it's just a matter of scoping out where are the cool areas, where can I get outside of my apartment, find a shady tree and have some, some peace and quiet in the shade. I'm living uh, close to a lake and to a large forest. So I think these are my targets for very hot days. So have a walk in a cool forest or go to swim in a lake. Some kind of things I enjoy on a, on a really warm, warm day. Yeah, I fully agree with my colleagues. And uh, let me use this opportunity to, to come back to this only solution. We, we were discussing that in the case of stormwater, green areas are only only solution. In the case of cooling cities, there are only only solutions. Again, uh, very often we don't fully appreciate and understand the mechanism that uh, this is not only shading. The strongest cooling mechanism is evaporation. And the trees and uh, generally green areas, they are evaporating a lot of water if they have access to water. So when we are designing the nature-based solution, we should give them water so then trees can evaporate and they really can cool very efficiently the cities. If you ask me what to do is to go to find the, the nearest tree, as McKenna said, or if there is no nearest tree, just plant a few just to cool your city because there is no other solutions. There is no technical solutions to cool your city. You can cool your, your room with air conditioning, heating outside, actually heating the city. And uh, when you use uh, trees, when you use nature-based solution, you're actually cooling the city. So let's use this wisdom of nature and uh, evaporate as much water possible through the nature solution in our cities. I think we couldn't imagine a better advertisement for those amazing machines that can suck the carbon out of the air and cool down the surrounding areas, aka our urban trees. Jenny, McKenna, Tomasz, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank, thank you. you Thanks thank a you. lot. Thank you. That is all for today. Climate change impacts are a very serious concern, and I hope you have enjoyed learning about the plans the European Union has to help us prepare for this challenge. I also hope you got inspired by the concept of nature-based solutions and how nature can help us cope with different weather extremes. We will be back in one month with an episode on one of the least natural artifacts of humanity, plastic. And we would be curious to know, in your opinion, what is the problem with plastics? We invite you to send us your voice messages to our email greendealbigdeal at ecologic.eu. 
we will post a link to an Instagram post with more information in the show notes. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection. The Ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Karl Lehmann, Eva Ivashruk and Aaron Best. Sound designed by Lena Ebli. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Rann. Special thanks to Hikaru Hayakawa, Johannes Seilnacht, Camilla Bausch, Michael Lawrence, Dirte Kemper and Ramiro de la Vega. Mm-hmm.